Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, and this is the last episode of Season 5. While we are moving into a new presidential administration, there are still several policies that remain on the table for everyday Americans. We all worry about COVID-19, healthcare, the economy, and so much more. Today, we're going to talk about something that is on everybody's mind and has been a major point of contention during the Trump administration, and that's immigration. We have seen throughout the years that the current occupant in the White House has pulled back policies that protected many people who are fleeing from dangerous situations. This includes women and children escaping violence and seeking asylum. Today, we have two women who have spent decades in the immigration fight, Cecilia Wang and Astrid Silva. Cecilia is a deputy legal director at the National American Civil Liberties Union. She directs the Center for Democracy, which encompasses the ACLU's work on immigrant rights. Just last week, the ACLU celebrated a win for the rights of immigrants and refugees as a district court blocked the Trump administration from unlawfully using a public health measure, in this case COVID, to deport thousands of unaccompanied children. Astrid is an immigration activist in the United States. Originally from Mexico, she has lived in Nevada since she was four years old. She is the co-founder of Dream Big Vegas and is the organizing director at the Progressive Leadership Alliance of Nevada. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Today, once again, we have some powerhouse women. We have Cecilia Wang with the ACLU, who is out there fighting to protect our rights every single day. And we have Astrid Silva, my friend, my emerged sister, someone who I really consider like the godmother of DACA with everything that she has done, just how I feel. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We know this is a very important subject. It's been under attack with the Trump administration, but we did have some good news a few days ago that I want us to talk about. But in true fashion, we have to always start with what drew you to this work. And Cecilia, let's go ahead and start with you. So thanks for having me on, Ashanti with Astrid. It's really exciting. Um, I was drawn to doing immigrants' rights work because, first of all, my parents um, are immigrants. Um, they came in 1968 for grad school, um, thanks to the efforts of Black Americans who fought the civil rights movement. Um, we not only got the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but also the um, Immigration Act of 1965, which list lifted racist quotas on immigration, including for Asians. So um, that's number one. And number two, um, I became a civil rights lawyer because of um, other forebears in the profession, in the calling, uh, Japanese-American attorneys who in the mid-80s, when I was in high school and in college, really fought to have the criminal convictions of Fred Korematsu and others um, during World War II uh, for violating Japanese-American internment and curfew orders. Um, in the mid-80s, they went into court trying to get those criminal convictions overturned, trying to get re redress and reparations um, for that racist uh, incarceration of people based on their ethnicity. Um, and that was my second inspiration. I love it. And 
Astrid. We have seen you in news articles. You have met with Senator Harry Reid to help work on DACA. We've seen you speak at the Democratic National Convention in 2016. What led you down this path? Thank you. I think mine was a little bit more. Uh, I didn't want to be deported, um, and that was that was my that was my main reason. Um, I didn't know anything else, and and just I want to say how excited I am to be on with Cecilia. Like just listening, um, I love immigration history. Um, Love is a very difficult word with it, but I love to learn about the history of immigration history. And so it's incredible, you know, to that we have so many people who are still living, breathing. Um, people pretend that immigration is like this whole brand new thing. It's like, no, this has been decades and centuries of the United States immigration laws. But for me, um, I came here in 1992 when I was four years old and um, I came here without papers. Um, so when when I wanted to go to, to college, I realized I couldn't um, and it was very difficult, but it also led me down this path of getting involved. Um, I had no idea what a dreamer was. I didn't know what the Dream Act was um, because I had just grown up with people who that wasn't an issue for them. Um, and so uh, I just honestly, I just didn't want to be deported. And I knew that once I turned 18, well, that was the that was the belief that once you turned 18, you get deported. Um, and so I started getting involved to see what it was that I could do. Um, and luckily, I'm here and we're hopefully um, going to get a lot better, better news this week. Yes. And for me, this issue really came to the forefront where I was just lucky to have some activist teachers in high school and I took Spanish class and she kind of snuck in a movie about immigration rights and deportation. And that really opened my eyes to this important issue. And there's just so much to DACA. So the first thing that I would love to have you all do is educate our listeners about why what is DACA and why is it so important for us as American citizens to support this particular piece of immigration law? Whoever wants to go first, you're both more knowledgeable than me. Like this, this is one of those podcasts that is just so educational for me. I woke up this morning so excited. I'm like, I'm about to learn so much from these women and I can't wait for our listeners to learn. Well, I'll let Cecilia do the legal side of it, um, just to, to make sure we have dot all our uh, I's and cross our T's on it. Well, you should really start, Astrid, because the story of DACA is the story of immigrant youth leading the way um, for the entire movement for immigrants' rights. So as we probably know, the history of it was that um, back in 2008, 2009, there were efforts to do a comprehensive immigration law that would provide some kind of path to citizenship for undocumented folks in the US. Those efforts failed and coming out of it, immigrant youth stood up across the United States to say, we're going to make this happen. And we're gonna start with the youth who people who are brought here as children um, with their families um, who as, President Obama famously put it, are Americans in every way except on paper, um, and we're going to fight for some path to citizenship. Um, just because of the realities of um, Congress, uh, there was no chance for legislative reform. A, a DREAM Act failed um, in Congress, and so the push turned to 
the administration, uh, the Obama administration to do something as president in the executive branch. And what we came out with was deferred action for childhood arrivals, um, which gave people a two year reprieve from deportation, not lawful status, but simply the government's promise that it would not move to uh, put anyone in deportation proceedings. Astrid, why don't you take it from there? Because yeah. you're and part of the movement <laughs> that won it. I think it's important for um, people to know that um, one the one of the reasons that you know this has been such an exhausting fight, um, and I always you know I try and always gather strength from those who fought for decades for. Um, everything else we've ever gotten. Um, but the original DREAM Act was introduced in the summer of 2001. Um, so even by the time I got involved, which is in 2009, um, the DREAM Act was already almost a decade old. Um, and, and like I said, I didn't know what it was and I would have benefited from it because there wasn't a lot of, of media coverage on it. There was no, you know, it wasn't this thing now where you wear a dreamer sticker, you say I'm undocumented. Um, uh, as I say, like, you know, we're, it wasn't very out. And so it was kind of a hidden thing. It was very quiet. You didn't talk about it. Even to this day, we have people who don't talk about their status because of the fear of what comes with it. Um, and so for me in, in 2009, when, when um, there was all these conversations about, about having a future, um, I was 19. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, like I was 20. And I was like, yes, like I, I, will, I always say it, right? I always was like, I'm going to go to a World Cup. Like that was like my thing. And I was like, all right, we're, I'm going to go to 2010 run. Right. Cause that's how at 20, I thought I had grown up and I had, you know, how a bill becomes a law and how I had, I had learned American history. I had learned American American politics. And so I just assumed like, this is just a natural step. Um, here we are 2020 <laughs> and it hasn't happened, but um, that 2009 summer was really important because it gathered a lot of strength. A lot of dreamers understood that we were the ones that were going to have to speak up for it um, because yes, the, the elected officials, the politicians who were working on it were doing good, but it wasn't their focus. Like it, they weren't the ones affected by it. So it was a bill um, and there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of, of understanding that people didn't have of what a dreamer was. Um, and so when when 2009 happened and um, unfortunately, Ted Kennedy had passed away and Ted Kennedy had been a very big proponent of it. Um, and we were kind of left in this 2010 lame duck session um, and we had these these votes and, and Senator Reid brought it up um, and it was the Dream Act was knocked down and it was it was horrible. It was five votes. Um, and I will, you know, forever be damaged by that because I was I was naive. I was like, wow, like, look. It was a year long and this is this is awesome. Um, and so all of that led to people around uh, in different states. Um, they started to, other people like myself, they started to say, hey, like, we need to talk about this. We need to be out there. We need to have people know. And, and that led to 2012, which is when Barack Obama um, came out to the Rose Garden. And as president, he announced this executive decision. Um, and, and the important part is it was an executive decision. It was not a law. And so, so that's caused a lot of the issues that we're in today 
But at the same time, that gave us the opportunity to fight with less fear, which made us much more bold than I think we've ever been. Um, I know that for me, I applied for my DACA October 1st, 2012, um, and I received it in March of 2013. That was the first time that I held a social security card that had my name on it. Um, I had a work permit, which is what the, the reprieve is. It's a work permit. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, well, you can just become a citizen. And it's like, no, it's not that easy because it's just literally what they're telling us is you're not on the top of the list to be deported. It's, it, you know, DACA stands for deferred, deferred action, um, which just kind of means we're less priority for um, the, the removal machine um, that exists. And, and I think for me, um, I finally learned how to drive. At that point in 2012, I was 24, 25-ish on the verge. Yeah, I was 25. Um, and I finally started to learn how to drive. I had been terrified because of how many people, especially with laws like SB 1070 in Arizona, which is so close to Nevada, um, people were getting deported for just driving without a license. And so our family, you know, we're very weary of that risk. And so I learned how to drive when I was 25 and, and um, all these things started happening. And I think um, a lot of people don't take into account that yes, DACA was an executive action. And right now we're still kicking ourselves because we're going through all these courts and everything, but on a personal level, it changed my life. I was able to get a job and finish college, which at that point I had been in college for like eight years <laughs> um, because I could only take a class or two. Um, my mom and dad would get some cash to pay for books. There was no scholarships. There was no access to any, um, you know, there, there was just no assistance. Um, and so uh, to me, DACA was life changing. Imagine that our democracy is a dashboard. The way it's going right now, lights are flashing, alarms are blaring, warning us that it is time to check our systems. That's why I want to tell you about the latest podcast from the nation called System Check. On System Check, hosts Melissa Harris-Perry and Dorian Warren sit down to diagnose and repair our malfunctioning political system. System Check is a weekly show that asks, what would it be like to break free from the oppressive systems that are holding us down? and it's unapologetically rooted in progressive Black culture and politics. From the movement for Black lives to the fight for climate justice, from the unjust immigration regime to the unfinished voting rights struggle, Dorian and Melissa want to know, how are you living in, working around, smashing through, or recreating the systems that shape your life? System Check just launched. And on their latest episode, they talk about the state that gave Joe Biden 306 electoral votes, Georgia, the state that I had betted would turn blue in 2020. I love this episode as it focuses not only on Black girl magic and work of women like Stacey Abrams, Nsay Ufot, and Latasha Brown, but also dives into what really compromises the New South. And that means you have to include Latino and AAPI voters. If you're trying to find a way to truly understand and digest what happened in Georgia, this is one of the best podcasts you can listen to. I know you'll enjoy System Check too, so don't wait. Subscribe to System Check on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods for new episodes every Friday. Hey, everyone. I wanted to take a minute to talk to you about one of my favorite progressive organizations that I have been working with over the past few years, The Arena. 
you all know that I'm about making sure that people from all walks of life have a seat at the table. For too long, progressives have underinvested in talent, and the arena is working to change that by building the most robust and diverse talent pipeline the Democratic Party has ever seen. I've been a supporter of the Arena Academy since it launched. The Arena Academy is a hands-on five-day training program featuring high-profile campaign staff as trainers to help you get your start in progressive politics. During your time at the Arena Academy, you can learn to be a campaign manager, digital director, organizer, and more. If you're inspired to work in progressive politics or looking for your next job in politics, go to arena.run bgg. That's arena.run bgg. And Astrid, I remember this photo of you in a car when you were so excited that you posted on your social media that you were able to do all these things now because of DACA. And for me, like so many Americans, it was just extremely upsetting to see how immigrant rights have been just on the forefront of being attacked under this soon to be over administration. We saw it with the Muslim ban, with, you know, decreasing the number of refugees who could come into the country, and of course with DACA. So what I want to use our remaining time for is really what's next? How do we keep up this fight? You know, if one of you can tell us about the decision that happened, you know, this weekend overturning an act of the Department of Homeland Security and how are we working with our new administration, the Biden-Harris administration, to really make sure that we are protecting DACA and the youth of this country? So I guess I'll start. Um, you know, we have a long road ahead of us, um, and there was a long road well before Donald Trump took office um, in the fight for immigrants' rights. Um, just to go back to some fairly recent history, you know, a lot of the issues with um, the Trump administration and immigration really have their roots in the 1996 immigration law that was passed by Congress and signed into law by Bill Clinton. Um, it made vast numbers of immigrants who are fighting their deportation cases um, it, subject to mandatory detention. So unlike pretrial detention in the criminal arena, People who are in removal proceedings often have to be detained, and that can last for months or years, um, even though at the end of the day, folks win their cases. Um, there also was, in the 1996 law, um, all kinds of provisions that took away the ability of immigration judges to say, um, this person who the government's trying to, be, to, to deport uh, deserves to be here for all kinds of equities, um, even though uh, the law says that they can be deported. So that 96 law took away that discretion um, in the immigration court system. So we have a lot to fix, even before Donald Trump's presidency. Um, a lot of people forget that in the summer of 2014, during Barack Obama's uh, second term, we first saw reports of the so-called surge in people seeking asylum from the three Central American countries, um, Guatemala, Honduras, um, and El Salvador. And it was Barack Obama and Joe Biden 
and Jay Johnson, uh, Obama's uh, second Secretary of Homeland Security, who said in response to these moms and kids trying to come into the US to apply for asylum to become future Americans, they said, we're gonna detain and deport all of these people. They're not eligible for asylum. You're gonna be detained and we're gonna deport you. Why did they say that? Why did Barack Obama say that? It's because they were afraid um, of the uh, optics of having this large number of people seeking asylum as was their right under US law. Then we come to the Trump administration, right? With all of that background where Stephen Miller um, and Steve Bannon formerly and the president have really made um, the immigration system and attacks on immigrants the centerpiece of what is frankly a white supremacist agenda. Um, there's a lot of work to be done to, re to reverse that damage and repair that damage. So I think that's number one. Um, number two, um, once President Biden is in office, and I'm optimistic that he will um, undertake the job of reversing the damage and you know, recognizing the mistakes that were made during the Obama administration um, on immigration, um, we're going to probably see a backlash in red states the same way we saw in 2010 and, and uh, the years after that with Arizona's SB 1070 law and similar anti-immigrant state laws. So as a movement, we've got to be ready for all of that. There's a lot of work to be done. And I think um, just to, to add on to what Cecilia said was um, in 1996, the three to 10 year bar was added. And the three to 10 year bar is really important um, because that's the major that's the reason that the majority of us, even with DACA, can't adjust our status. Um, as I've said, you know, people always tell me like, oh, just get married, just, you know, just go fix your status um, because they think it's it's very easy, right? They watched Sandra Bullock on a movie get married and they're like, oh, it's just you know, it just takes a week or two. Yeah. Um, fortunately, that 1996 bill, what it did was that it made it so that if we came here without documents, just the simple act of entering and then staying for over a year means that the majority of us have to leave the country for 10 years and then asked to come back. Um, and so that 10 year, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm 32. Um, so if I was to apply just under the regular, right, like if I was to get married um, and apply, I'd get to come back maybe, possibly at 42. Um, and so you know, for especially older people, like it just, it really is something that, that really destroys families um, because the family separation continues. Um, and so that's very important to remember, but also, you know, the DACA decision that we had this weekend gives us a lot of, of hope um, that the courts are still working as they should be. Um, we did have a Supreme Court decision that was in our, in our favor this summer. And unfortunately, um, you know, the Trump administration just pretended that the Supreme Court didn't matter, um, which would have given new applications. Because a lot of people still say, oh, well, you know, DACA, DACA is alive and well. In reality, DACA died on September 5th, 2017, when Donald Trump sent Jeff Sessions out to end it for us. Um, that means that none of our, I, I call them my baby dreamers. These are the kids that are 15, 16, um, you know, even a little bit younger right now, um, that they didn't, they didn't get to apply you know, older dreamers who maybe were on the verge of finishing their GED because we have to have all these qualifications. It's a fallacy that we're undocumented. We are far more documented than most 
American citizens. I have to do a background check every two years, um, an extensive, you know, I have to give my fingerprints. Um, it's biometrics. I have to do all of these things. So the whole undocumented thing is just not having a social security card because we are, we are more than well documented. Um, and so all of these young people couldn't apply for it. And so with the Supreme Court decision, we were excited and, you know, it was this great victory, 5-4. Um, and the, the, the Trump administration was just like, nah, we're not going to do that. Um, and so now this weekend, we had a really great decision um, based on uh, the Bataya lawsuit, which was a lawsuit against that lawsuit, which I feel like my entire life for the past five years has been lawsuit, lawsuit, and waiting for a court date and waiting for this and like, you know, I'm not even in court and I'm like, I got to wear a blazer because we're waiting. <laughs> um, and so um, it's important to remember that um, we are always waiting constantly for these decisions. The decision that came back basically said that Chad Wolf, who um, ended, well, basically said DACA wasn't going to, to move forward over the summer. They're saying he wasn't legally um, the Department of Homeland Security head, which is so confusing, right? Because it's like, as a normal person, I don't just show up to somebody else's job and be like, I'm going to make decisions today. Um, but in the world of, of the Trump administration, I guess it's normal. Um, and so what they decided was that he should not have been able to not reinstate the program as the Supreme Court had said. So like, it's like these confusing things. Um, and what what was decided was that he shouldn't have been there. So now we're waiting for um, a further follow-up to see if the program can reopen. And so even with the Joe Biden administration coming in, it's important to remember that these battles are continuing every single day. I am optimistic. I'm obviously, I'm, you know, I've become a very, very, um, uh, something I never thought I, I've become a realist throughout this, this process of being involved in politics. Um, I, I know the background on the Biden, you know, um, he, my dad was swept up by the, the Obama administration um, for ICE deportation. So I know very real what the Obama administration did. Um, um, but I try and not let that jade my hope that they will do better um, this time around because so many families need it. Um, I, I started my own organization, Dream Big Nevada, um, because families didn't have options and we at least try and help them. But I have to have that hope for our families. Um, and, and hope is, is honestly the thing that, that, that dies last. And I always say, you know, if my dad could cross a desert for to get here, um, I can keep fighting this battle. Well, we want to help you both keep fighting the battle. So Astrid, tell us how people can follow you, get involved with Dream Big Nevada and Cecilia, everything that we can continue to do to support the work of the ACLU. I just appreciate how y'all have just so been at the forefront and just knocking down and fighting all the things that the Trump administration has done. So Astrid, we'll start with you. Well, the number one thing always is um, donating your treasure. Um, I think no matter what organization, what podcast you support, um, we always need um, that that financial support, um, especially with COVID. Things have become very difficult because even with our organization, right, we were focused on dreamers and we've all of a sudden become a food pantry. And because undocumented people don't have the ability and lack the information of where to go for basic things. I think the biggest, you know, the biggest myth is that like we're here and we want to get citizenship. Um, I do. I definitely want to get citizenship. But sometimes for our normal, you know, our community members who are just coming in the door, um, well, it's a cyber door now, but through our cyber doors, 
They just want to know, are they allowed to pick up food? Are they allowed to, you know, receive assistance for their kids? Um, it's not even anything out of this world. Um, and so for us, for Dream Big Nevada, you follow us on social media. You follow me, Astrid underscore NV on all our, our platforms. Um, but please, um, if you don't know and would like to know about immigration reform, ask somebody who's knowledgeable. The memes and the and the movies, they don't interpret what it really is. Um, they just interpret a really nice picture of it and that's not what it is. So if you have questions, ask away. Um, we are always open. Um, there's no dumb questions. I, I think we, we have some dumb answers sometimes, but there's no dumb questions when it comes to immigration. Um, because the more people that understand how difficult this is and that it's not just a simple filling out of paperwork, um, the, the better people can understand how, how to help us in this battle. Cecilia. You know, I think Ashanti and Astrid, you're both doing it already. Um, speaking as an, as an immigrant's rights lawyer, ironically, what I would say is, you know, it's not the work in courts. It's not the work in legislatures. It's not the advocacy with people in power um, that is going to change things. It takes a nation of millions. It takes all of us and finding our shared values. I think the fact that Black and Latino, Latinx, Latina voters um, delivered key states um, in, in support of racial justice in the fight for racial justice. We are going to hold whoever is president um, in the next two months or in the next four years and beyond, we're gonna hold them accountable that by having conversations like this um, so that we all have um, a sense of shared purpose and will make the progress we wanna see. Cecilia Asherit, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for everything that you do. We appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this season. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com. And, of course, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. And you can find them at wondermedianetwork.com. We'll see you very soon, Brown Girls, for Season 6, where we will cover the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration. Until next time, Brown Girls. Hey, everyone. I have a new podcast for you to check out. As a first-generation South Asian born here in the U.S., host Amy Thakar-Raval found a strong desire to connect with South Asian trailblazers around the world in a variety of industries. Her podcast, Amy Tuckered Out, tells the story of the South Asian diaspora one interview at a time. They discuss what it was like growing up brown, personal and professional journeys, and topics that they can never talk about in front of those aunties and uncles they grew up with. Listen and subscribe to Amy Tuckered Out wherever you get your podcasts.